I feel I should begin with an apology. Sorry. Perhaps not quite as many as there are in the front of the order of service. Steve teased me a few months back in the summer about having a rather long title for an order of service. I think I've bettered it this time. The reason why I feel I should say sorry is because forgiveness is a very difficult topic. The gospel reading that we've just heard is challenging. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis had a chapter titled Forgiveness. And in it, he said, rather wisely, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then the very mention of the subject is greeted with howls of anger. To begin, I think it's useful if we look at the psalm that we've sung at the beginning of the service, Psalm 103. When we think of our, how we could forgive others, it's helpful, I think, firstly, to contextualize it with God's forgiveness of us. If you want to turn with me to this in the Pew Bibles, Psalm 103 is found on page 605 of the Pew Bibles, which we sang in metrical form earlier. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost bring, praise his holy name. Why? Verse 3, he forgives all your sins, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So when we're looking at this particular gospel reading, I think it's helpful to look at it in the context of our loving Father's forgiveness for us, as revealed in this psalm, a psalm of David. Peter comes to Jesus with a question about forgiving his brother seven times, and Jesus gives the answer, depending on how um, Hebdomoconticus Hepta is translated, it could be either 77 times or 70 times seven. If you take it as 70 times seven, 490, you can see that saying forgiving somebody for when they're saying sorry an awful lot of times. What Andrew thought of this is an interesting question. And Andrew, Peter's brother. But we need to read it within the context of us forgiving as God has forgiven us. 
If we turn, for example, to Galatians... Chapter 3. Sorry, no, I'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as in Christ God forgave you. So when we're forgiving others, it's really out of the forgiveness that Christ has given to us. It's an interesting question as to whether it's easier to forgive somebody who's a friend or to forgive somebody who's an enemy. With Jesus, the distinction is completely blurred. Matthew chapter 5, he tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, sometimes if you're hurt by a friend, it could be even, even more painful. But the distinction is blurred in Jesus' eyes. The reason why we are to forgive others and why that is connected to God's forgiveness of us, as we heard in the, the reading from Matthew chapter 18, is something that runs through the gospel. It's not just isolated to this passage. We find it perhaps firstly in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Forgiveness is an expression of mercy. Similarly, we read later on in the context of the Lord's Prayer, just after Jesus introduces his his prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he describes, if you do not forgive men when they sin against you, if you don't forgive others when when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Tough words. Tough words. To try and understand this, and maybe shed a little bit of light on it, I'm going to use an illustration that I used previously last summer. I introduced the analogy of laser light for prayer. Sir John Polkinghorne, the physicist, describes how laser light is powerful because it is coherent. All the light waves have the same phase, as shown here, the same frequency. Um, They will also have the same polarization. We get constructive or destructive interference patterns when they're out of phase with each other. But laser light is powerful because all of the light is coherent with each other. The connection with prayer is that if our will, our wants, our desires are properly aligned with God's will, wants, and desires, then the outcome of prayer is bound to be more powerful. If we're clashing with God's intentions, it's like destructive interference of the wave, like the interference patterns you saw there earlier where you see black areas where the laser is put through a diffraction grating. On the other hand, when we have constructive interference, when our will, as you can see here now, is aligned with God's will, the prayer outcome is going to be stronger. And this extends to the specific example of prayers for forgiveness as well. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
It's also why John, when he was writing his first epistle, describes how if we are seeking God's will in our prayer, then he listens to us. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John chapter 5. So think about this in terms of our forgiveness of others. If our forgiveness of others is not aligned with God's forgiveness, if we are unprepared to forgive other people, then it's an expression of hypocrisy that we are expecting God to forgive us for the very things that we are unprepared to forgive others. It's out of tune with God's intentions. To illustrate this a little bit further, I'm going to ask Chris to play as you've never heard Chris play before. Thank you, Chris. Tempted to say that was lovely, but uh, <laughs> what's going wrong there? Chris is playing in two different keys. That's why they're out of tune with each other, out of sync with each other. Here we've got the same phase of lights giving constructive interference. Now we'll have the same fre- frequency that Chris is going to play, and we should ho- hopefully hear something much more melodious. Lovely. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) A friend in Edinburgh described it as being a little bit like two millstones grinding against each other. When God is offering forgiveness to us, and we're rejecting that forgiveness ourselves, or rejecting it in a hypocritical form. The 17th century Presbyterian, English Presbyterian uh, minister, Matthew Henry comments on this passage, Matthew 18, and he describes at the very end how the person who is unwilling to forgive others probably hasn't truly repented of their own sin, probably hasn't truly accepted the gospel, probably hasn't truly accepted the forgiveness that God is already offering. In Luke chapter 17... Jesus says something rather similar to his disciples. He says, if your brother sins against you, you're to forgive him even up to seven times a day. When he repents, in the context of repentance. Luke chapter 17. You can find this on page 135 of the Pew Bibles if you you want to, to follow with me. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, often we will think about 
forgiveness as being conditional upon repentance. But the interesting thing is that sometimes forgiveness can come prior to repentance. It can be producing repentance. Think of Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Is he saying that to a repentant crowd? No. Whether or not the forgiveness is accepted is another matter. But forgiveness, in God's case, comes prior to our acceptance of it and our repentance. The offer of forgiveness comes first. We find this again in the letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us, past tense, he forgave us all our sins, cancel the written code. We were already dead in our sins, and he forgave us. Now, this can be hard to understand. How can forgiveness possibly be prior to repentance? How could it sometimes produce repentance? Well, actually, the act of forgiving can also be an act of condemnation. It's an expression of power in a way. Suppose, sorry to to pick on you, mum, but suppose I was to say, mum, I forgive you. Now, a lot of people are probably wondering, what on earth am I forgiving my mother for? And I don't have anything to forgive her for, don't worry. (laughs) Um, Mum would probably be immediately, and she had a worried expression when I said that, what, what, what have you, am I being forgiven for? What, 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 what have I done? Forgiveness in that sense could be a form of accusation. It's an acknowledgement that somebody has done something wrong, which they may not necessarily be aware of. In Psalm 130, we have an expression of how God's forgiveness actually produces fear. Psalm 130, just beginning at the the start of the psalm. If you want to have a look at this as well, you can find that on page 625. um, Sorry, 624 of the Pew Bibles. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. Curious, how, could, how should forgiveness produce fear and respect? But it can be something that can produce repentance as well as repentance being something necessary for forgiveness. So when Jesus says to Peter, when your brother comes to you and says, sorry, maybe up to 490 times, the response must always be, Forgiveness, 490 times. But to to say 490 is actually in some ways to miss the point. Whether it was 77 times or 490 times, nobody's really going to be keeping count at that point. The point is that we shouldn't really be keeping count. Peter was keeping count in a way. Thinking, oh well, seven, seven times, that sounds like a fairly generous limit. There was a rabbinical tradition um, that developed later on of Maybe three times is the, is the limit for forgiveness. So if that tradition was already extant, then uh, Peter was doubling that and adding a bit and probably thinking he was being fairly generous. But Jesus says no, no limit. 
Not just seven times. Seventy times seven. Seventy-seven times. And when we forgive in that way, that is when we truly receive the fullness of God's forgiveness. Because there's no hypocrisy involved, there's no double standards, where we're expecting something that we're unwilling to meet out to others, unwilling to share with others. This includes forgiving somebody countless times when they leave the toilet seat up, or when a flatmate refuses to pull their weight in letting out the rubbish, or any other example you could care to mention. But what about some of the really big things that are rather difficult to forgive? The Spanish priest, Jose Pagola, also commenting on this passage, Matthew chapter 18, describes how often when he addresses the subject of forgiveness, he receives a lot of hate mail, to most of it anonymous. The people tell him, how can I forgive a terrorist? Or that he's ignoring the spouse who's been humiliated by their husband or wife due to infidelity. They tell him that he's not being realistic. And similarly, again, that's probably why C.S. Lewis was saying, whenever the subject of forgiveness is mentioned, it's often greeted with howls of anger. This is tough. This is tough. It's particularly tough when we have the really big examples. And probably not much bigger comes than somebody whose children, somebody who has a son or daughter whose life is taken, whose life is murdered, who has their children murdered. Nevertheless, there are examples of people who take Jesus' teaching seriously. Now, I can't tell you what to do if you've been seriously aggrieved by somebody. I haven't been, I haven't had to forgive anyone for murdering a member of my family. I haven't had to forgive for something really big. But there are other people I can point to. People who have seriously taken Jesus' words. I'll give you one example. This is Robin Oak. Some of you might know Robin Oak's story. Robin Oak's son, Stephen, was murdered by Al-Qaeda terrorists. Rather than telling you his story myself, I'm going to let you hear it in his own words. How we can forgive the really big sins. They, they found the two extra terrorists they wanted, and in there was another lad who had escaped from a terrorist operation in London. And Steve knew about this and had been one who was briefed as to what he looked like and gave a good description and Steve found him in the kitchen under a table and tried to get him out and the fellow made another bid to escape Steve not knowing that he had a big knife up his arm and he with three colleagues all were injured and Steve of course died uh, in that attempt to, to get this guy in the morning at half past seven my own deputy phoned me and said there's a plane load of journalists coming across they've chartered a plane, they want to interview you and then one journalist stood up with I'm sure no malice he simply said, Mr Oak what do you think about the man who's killed your son question I hadn't expected 
I, I looked at him probably for 10 or 12 seconds, but I was actually praying for the right answer, knowing that whatever I said was going to go out on air. And I said, I think roughly this, I don't know all the circumstances, I certainly don't know the man, but I forgive him, and I pray that God will forgive him. And suddenly this mood of the press conference completely changed, and of course they couldn't believe that a chief of police could ever forgive a terrorist, and why, and so on and so forth. Then they wanted personal interviews. Now, why I said it was, I'm sure, God-given, because I, I wouldn't have planned that, and I'd only got ten seconds' notice to, to give an answer. But I've been forgiven, and so, in a sense, forgiveness is part of me. I've been a parent where I've had to be forgiven, or I've forgiven children. So, in a sense, it was part of my life, so it was a natural thing to say, but I suppose unnatural to say, I forgive a terrorist. But I'm so glad that I did. That's forgiveness of a really big thing. Perhaps comparable to what we've heard in the parable earlier, where 10,000 talents, or 10,000 bags of gold, as it's described in the newer translation of the NIV, somebody being forgiven something really big, really big. A talent, as we read later in Matthew's Gospel, in the context of the laborers in the vineyard, or sorry, a denarius, the silver coin, in the context of the laborers in the vineyard, that was a daily wage. The other person, the other servant, um, only owed a day's wage. But if you're to multiply that up to 10,000 talents, you're talking about 20 years at least for one talent. A person, it was effectively like a life sentence for that person would be paying off if they owed 10,000 talents, 10,000 bags of gold. Something really big probably comparable in that case to what Robin Oak was able to do in the case of forgiving the terrorist who'd murdered his son, stabbed him with a knife. This is a good example of being converted in one's thinking, being converted in one's mind, so that it is aligned with God's will, God's offer of forgiveness. Peter, when he writes his epistle later on, clearly has a change in attitude to what he had at the beginning of his encounter with Jesus in Matthew 18. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, be tender-hearted and humble. An expression of forgiveness towards others where there is unity of mind, unity of mind between the person who is forgiving and forgiven and between God and the person who is offering forgiveness and is seeking forgiveness. Another example that will probably be familiar to many of you, it's hard to believe that it's very almost 30 years ago now that the Enniskillen bombing occurred. Gordon Wilson's name became internationally famous as a consequence. But there are some people here who weren't born at that time. So I'll just remind you briefly of that story in Gordon Wilson's own words. I and my family heard him speaking in Dublin um, about 30-odd years ago. And his forgiveness wasn't something that was universally recognized or accepted, as we'll hear also his wife, Joan, describing. Following 
the death, the loss of their daughter Mary, who was a nurse, the youngest person to die as a result of the bombing, almost 30 years ago. I, on the one hand, she was telling me she was all right, on the other hand, she was screaming. When I asked her for the fourth or fifth time, she said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were the last words she spoke. I should never forget them. You say that you bear no one any ill will. It must be very difficult for you not to feel bitter towards those um, who, who were responsible for, for leaving that bomb. I haven't really had time to think of the wider implications. I certainly don't feel bitterness. People are surprised that I don't, but I don't. I prayed for them last night. Sincerely. And I hope I get the grace to continue to do so. He came under very severe criticism. We were in no doubt about that. There were some very severe letters came here, uh, which affected me greatly because I, I just found it very difficult, very hurtful. I've said it a thousand times, Mary's last words were words of love. And that helped. And then I was asked quite a simple question. How do you feel about the folk who planted the bomb? And um, I said what I said. I bear them no ill will. I bear them no grudge. I shall pray for those fellows tonight. And I still feel that way. An expression of love. Love received, love given. No grudge offered. Jose Pagola also comments how we can sometimes misunderstand what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we let go of anger. God expresses righteous anger. The psalm we read and sung earlier describes how the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love, but that doesn't mean he never gets angry. And repressed anger isn't helpful. But anger that seeks revenge is just going to be a self-perpetuating cycle. And that is something that Gordon Wilson was very keen to avoid, to stem. And I think ultimately he was, to a degree, successful. Certainly there were no reprisals immediately following the Enniskillen bombing, which were very likely at the time, because of his expression of forgiveness, even though he didn't actually use the word forgiveness himself, he said he bore no grudge, but effectively an expression of forgiveness. Jose Pagola also describes how the dynamic of forgiveness is something that seeks To develop good as well, to avoid evil, to develop good. That is something that Gordon Wilson exemplified powerfully. It's also something that I think Paul has at his heart when he's speaking in Romans chapter 12, that we shouldn't repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this isn't easy. I certainly wouldn't prepare, give any false impressions that this is easy. What about something that might be almost unimaginable? What about somebody whose family was killed in the Holocaust 
C.S. Lewis, in his chapter on forgiveness, says he might well be posed the question, how could you forgive the Gestapo if your family died in the Holocaust? If you were a Pole or a Jew? And he doesn't provide an answer to that. He just says it's a good question. I often wonder about that. It's at this point I think it might be helpful to hear the story of Eva Kaur. Eva Kaur is somebody who lost her parents, most of her family, at Auschwitz. She and her sister were spared because they were twins, but spared only so they could be used in experiments by Mengele, by Yusuf Mengele. Nevertheless, even she found it in her heart to forgive. And it has not been something that has been universally accepted. Let's hear her story in her own words, and I'll use this just finally to close. Mangala would count us every morning, and he wanted to know how many guinea pigs he had this day. They would tie both of my arms to restrict the blood flow, take a lot of blood from my left arm, and give me a minimum of five injections in the right arm. The content of those injections we didn't know then, nor do we know today. After one of those injections, I became very ill with a very high fever. My legs and arms were swollen and very painful, and I had huge red spots covering my body. Next morning, Angela came in with four other doctors, and then he declared, too bad, she's so young. She has only two weeks to live. For the following two weeks, I have only one clear memory, crawling on the barrack floor, because I no longer could walk. And as I was crawling, I would fade out in and out of consciousness, telling myself, I must survive, I must survive. 1992, and was a documentary done by German television about the Mengele twins. And in that documentary, there was a Nazi doctor from Auschwitz. And I figured if he was alive in 92, he might be alive in 93. So I got his telephone number, I called him. I didn't, didn't plan to ask him any of these questions. Suddenly, I am asking him, you were in Auschwitz. Did you ever walk by a gas chamber? Did you ever go inside the gas chamber? Do you know how the gas chamber operated? And he said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He said, this is the nightmare that I live with every single day of my life. And when I'm describing the operation of the gas chamber, he was stationed outside, looking through a peephole, while the gas was coming down and people were dying. When everybody was dead and nobody moved, he knew that they were dead and he signed one death certificate. No names, just the number of people that were murdered. I wanted him to sign a document, just what he told me, but I wanted it signed at the ruins of the gas chamber in Auschwitz. 
And he agreed immediately. I will have an original document signed by a Nazi. And if I ever met a revisionist who said the Holocaust didn't happen, I could take that document and shove it in their face. I wanted to thank this Nazi doctor for his willingness to document the gas chamber operation. I didn't know how to thank the Nazi. I didn't tell anybody about it because even to me it sounded strange. I didn't want anybody to change my mind. After 10 months, one morning I woke up and the following simple idea popped into my head. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? I knew immediately that he would like it and that was a meaningful gift. A Auschwitz survivor gives him a letter of forgiveness to a Nazi doctor. But what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I had the power to forgive. And that became an interesting thing because as a victim of almost 50 years, I never thought that I had any power over my life. Made me feel very good that I, the little guinea pig of 50 years, even had the power over the angel of death of Auschwitz. I felt free, free from Auschwitz, free from Mengele. So now that I have forgiven him, I knew that most of the survivors denounced me and they denounced me today also. But what is my forgiveness? I like it. It is an act of self-healing, self-liberation, self-empowerment. All victims, all hurt, feel hopeless, feel helpless, feel powerless. I want everybody to remember that we cannot change what happened. That is the tragic part. But we can change how we relate to it. We cannot change what happens, but we can change how we relate to it. Let us pray. Loving Father, help us when we find it difficult to forgive others whether it's repeated offences that are small or something really big that haunts us that we can't get out of our minds. Help us to have unity of mind with your Son, Jesus Christ, who forgave from the cross Help us to forgive, like also the martyr Stephen. Help us when it is difficult, and it is difficult. But we pray this in order that we might more truly and fully be aligned with your will, with your purposes for us. Because we need your forgiveness.
Help us to be merciful, to be peacemakers, that we might truly be your children and recipients of your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.